Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Hello, Louise. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to dig into this with you. I know. We're here for Megan Colhan Galbraith's The Guild of the Infant Savior. I think we really only have a couple left after this. Yeah, maybe like Um, three. It's a dense book, but it's also super interesting and just deep, very deep. It is deep. I like the way she switches writing styles throughout it. Different yeah, or, narratives. Is, yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. Well, so we're sort of starting here today for the listeners on page 171, Mother's Day. We're going to go through 209, kind of tackle a little bit here. So what struck you about this part? I mean, it. you know, there's so much that has to do with Mother's Day, why she calls it that and her mother. and Well, and here we are, the Friday yeah, before Mother's Day. So. I know. I mean, this was just a lot about her mom's dying and the garden that she planted. And mm-hmm. I thought you might have more to say about this episode, considering you yeah, it made lost me, your mom. and Yeah, it made me sad. It was, she really had a hard time losing her mom. And her mom planted these daylilies, which I guess, I mean, are they called daylilies? I think so. They're kind of like a weed. We have them here, <laughs> but they're really pretty. And she has this whole thing with the day lilies, like how she, when her mom does pass, she eventually takes them to her house to go at her house. And I think she had a lot of unanswered things with her mother, as we all do as adoptees, right? I just felt it was sad just going through that. And yeah. And to be clear, this is her adoptive adoptive mother. mother, Right. Yeah. And she had pancreatic cancer and it was just a sad, there was one cute part when her mom said her mom had a little Ziggy. Do you remember Ziggy, the cartoon? Yeah. She had a little Ziggy cartoon that everything will be okay, the little rainbow. And so when her mom did die, she said, what's our sign going to be? Like, how will I know you've come to see me or something? Mm-hmm. And there was a rainbow. And yes. She, and she took that Ziggy cartoon with her. So, I mean, she really was close to her mom and loved her mom, her adopted mom. But I think there was also a lot of unanswered questions there for her. Mm-hmm. You can feel it throughout the whole writing of it. Well, and I think she says at one point that her mom came from the silent generation. So that is, <laughs> that I mean, that is our parents' era. They were the yeah. silent generation. So my mom used to do um, that. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> kind of that like, okay, I guess I didn't ask a question. <laughs> yeah. And then she goes, the next chapter is all about searching for her birth father. And it sounds like Ursula, her birth mother, wasn't quite sure who he was. Or she just did not want to say, but she wasn't super helpful. You know, he was tall, handsome, and dumb was one of the ways in which she described him. (laughs) Which she said in front of Megan's children. I enjoyed that. She's like, great. (laughs) And she went down this path. There was a couple of funny things that I thought you would like. She had a name, Dick Sanford, for a while, Mm -hmm. right? So she started doing, there was a name at the beginning before there was no name, the taken back name. So she finds all these Dick Sanfords and then goes down that whole path of like that one guy who looked really cool and she could picture hanging out. 
<laughs> he was in the wrong time zone, the wrong place. Yeah, he he wasn't even near. It's Thanks. funny, you know, the fantasy though of yeah, I did all that. I remember early in my search while the adoption agency was searching, I was making phone calls since I don't remember how what led me down this path, but I was making I was just going through the phone book in New York and then someone said, Oh, I think I think that's an aster, someone from the, you know, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast. (laughs) Just And then the fantasies that ensued from... Like, that could be me. That's Yes. (laughs) What I do like is she also writes letters to her hypothetical father, what she Mm -hmm. would send. And the one guy she kind of thought maybe was him because he looks like her son's. She kind of narrowed down. So she writes all these letters, which you can see all of us stressing, like, how am I going to write this? I've written that letter. You've written that letter. We've all written these letters of just trying to say who we are and accept me type of thing. So she gives the I think I did write one of those letters. You didn't write them? Louise. (laughs) (laughs) To anybody, I don't know. I've written written some, but it's like, please accept me, right? But also, here are the facts. I don't want anything. You know, the whole thing. Right. I don't want anything that has to, that is a common theme when adoptees are searching. I've said that. that We have to say that. Yeah. I've written it a few times. And so at the end of that, I like how she wrote, well, was he my father? I'll never know because I can't write a letter to my dead dad and expect a reply because the one guy she thinks might be is dead. And it's like, yeah. so she kind of, it's just this unanswered vague. I did like this that I highlighted Mm. partially because just the way in which my relationship with my adoptive father, just the paragraph says the impact Mm. of a father on a girl's life is profound and well-documented. If the relationship was based on emotional or physical abuse or was non-existent to begin with, people will accuse a girl of having daddy issues. The term applies as a basic and derogatory catch-all about women who try to claim their sexuality. Girls with daddy issues, according to the male fantasy, are easy conquests. It is also a classic double bind and a version of the Madonna whore complex. Mm -hmm. There's a saying, absent fathers make nuts and sluts. I'm glad you read that. I have a big circle. She says, I'm furious at the double standard and systemic misogyny leveled at women who surrender their children, but not at fathers who outright abandon the women they've impregnated. That's right. Outright Mm -hmm. abandon them. Mm Mm-hmm. Gosh. They don't get any slack for that. I still hear it all the time. I mean, they get a lot of yeah. slack for that is what I'm trying to say. I spoke to someone recently who told me about someone else and said, oh, she has such daddy issues. And I was thinking, you know, can we not do this to women, please? It's just not a way to sum up trauma that people have been through. Yeah, Right. Agreed. It was, it was great what you wrote. All right. Well, then the next part. This was a really intense yes. Yes. Chapter the girl, the garden, and the key, and it's all about the false self. Who and she just goes through this. It's a great essay. It's just it's a, great. It's a. It really is a standalone essay. I was going to say that. I think it's almost the most poignant part of the book. It's like its own work, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a standalone essay Gosh. for sure. She does uh, this whole thing where the false self has the different people in her life are like the first mother, the first prince describing so she talks about her she's the false self through the whole thing until the end but it's until the end when she becomes her true self and true self and well just some of the highlighted things yeah she thought first prince had saved her false Mm. self wasn't exactly sure she needed to be saved but at the same time she feared being alone she busied herself pleasing others bosses her mother-in-law her family 
only father, first prince, and society's expectations. She was hiding bits of herself from him, her deepest thoughts and desires. She kept those in the secret walled garden inside of herself. It was a place she'd go to to be alone, and she got upset when he tried to follow her there. It's I had just written in this book of essays that I'm writing, I just wrote a couple of weeks ago in the story about there's a secret place that I have always gone mm-hmm. that's been my safe place my whole life. I just tune out and go there. Go um, in, into it. And it's the key to your garden. It's your, she captures it. I mean, I thought actually about you a lot in this one, this whole section. Well, this line right here, after what you read, after many years, she re- realized she abandoned mm-hmm herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I had that highlighted too. Yeah. She becomes the perfect Martha Stewart, the mom, the breadwinner, everything. I never did any of those things, but <laughs> no, but she, but she threw away for someone else's dreams, right? Not being authentic to herself and not knowing who she was. Maybe that's part of it too, because we put on these chameleon faces. Survive, it's survival mm-hmm. techniques. It's you figure out what somebody wants and then you adapt yourself to that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the safest way to survive, right? Yeah. You know better is it's another level of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. She, this part about work also struck me because, you know, she said she had friends. She liked to go Where out. Where are with. you at? What page? I'm on page 201. I know it's a long section, uh, but I just was after what you just said. False self was excellent at hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. I thought that was just cool. She excelled at her jobs as the voice of college presidents and chancellors, spending years mastering and mirroring their speech patterns so she could write convincingly in their voice so she could gain prestige, raise more money, and be the experts in their fields. Just even at work, she wasn't, she was just going through the motions of life. I don't know. Yeah. It gets pretty big what happens to her. Do you want to talk? And that the whole going through the divorce and (laughs) I mean, she says here going back, she'd created a home where everyone else's feelings were accounted for, but hers didn't matter. She'd neglected to show her feelings. And perhaps that meant they thought that she didn't have any in the end that didn't feel much like home. That exact line, what you just read, I'd been looking for it while we were talking that hit me big time. And then she does start to, it said her body broke first yeah. and uh-huh. false self ignored every warning sign because she'd convinced herself that she was stronger than that. Yeah. She literally left her work and everything. She had a big job, but had, you know, made up a reason why she was going off to be a writer, but really she was having a breakdown. I mean, mm-hmm. just a complete. And then what saves her is writing, which we yeah. always talk about, right? That's what she gets into her writing program. And starts to find herself. I like I like this part about when her marriage was ending. I thought this was an interesting thing. Did you try hard enough? Said only father. Only father because she doesn't have the other father. I love right. that. No one will ever love you like first prince loved you, said birth mother. I mean, these are horrible. <laughs> She's not supported. Right. It broke my heart. The hardest breakups are the ones in which no one has done anything wrong. There was no cheating or abuse or secret gambling problem, just a long, slow decay. Mm -hmm. The writing is just, it's rich. I liked this. True self, true self's voice was waking up slowly Mm. by shutting her body down piece by piece. Listen to me, the voice said, hear me out. But her mind seemed intent on self-oblivion and her heart was now locked up tight in the garden. In this way, false self 
erased herself and she'd fooled first prince, which wasn't fair. Mm-hmm. She'd never given herself a chance to fall in love with herself. He'd fallen in love with someone who hadn't existed. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. This is my favorite part, actually, that we've read. I just, I read it a few times just because I, I've never really seen it written like this. So I don't know. Very cool. Well, at the end, she gets. Oh, yeah. Wait here. This is another because this was definitely me. Before Uh she recognized the pattern, she had a long and tiresome love affair with unavailability. Uh Married and avoidant men found her curious and beautiful, and she reveled in their just out of reach attention before realizing that the unrequited love stories were simply reenacting the same pattern of abandonment that seemed most comfortable to her. She kept voting against her own self-interest. The person she was abandoning was herself. Yeah, that's the part I circled. I was like, oh, Sarah's going to like that. (laughs) Because it's true. I mean, you're just, we're chasing the abandonment. You're constantly, that's where you're most comfortable, right? It's like, (sighs) I love that. Well, and at the end, she does get her own apartment with her own secret garden and She became less fearful there would be a second prince. I like that part. She found a beautiful new castle to live in a walkable city where she dwelled as a single girl nearly 30 years earlier. She felt she returned home. And for the listeners, she moved to the city above a bookstore in a little apartment. She was determined to live openly from a place of tenderness and vulnerability. She required reciprocity from those she held dear, letting go of those who didn't rise to meet her. No prince would again have power over her because she wouldn't give them power. I love that. Yes. And I am now looking through here and I'm wondering if we have one or two more. I guess we have two more. I'm thinking two two more. Yeah. Two more. Yes. And then we have an exciting season finale, which we will talk about in the next couple of episodes. Yeah, we really do. And we have a really, really cool guest, don't we, Sarah? Yes, we do. We're excited to introduce him. We are. Okay. See you soon. See you soon. Hi, listeners. We just wanted to thank our sponsor, S12F. He's a fellow adoptee dedicated to supporting other adoptees. And of course, we want to thank our Patreons. We couldn't do this weekly podcast without your support. We're so happy to be able to get these important stories out there. Thanks again. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Now back to our guest. So we're here today. We're very excited because Sarah and I are having our sponsor on and he is a fellow adoptee. We met through some mutual friends. He had been listening to our podcast and it was kind of serendipitous how it all came together. So from New York, we welcome Jeffrey Leventhal. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. So excited you're here. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure being here. And thank you guys for the work that you're doing for adoptees also. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. Thank you. Well, just tell us your story. We know your story and we don't know it. We don't don't know know. all of it. Mm -hmm. So we're excited to dig in. And I think, tell us how you want to do it from the beginning. Yeah, I think the story that I have has a couple of different angles. And, you know, I think adoption has impacted my life, obviously personally, but professionally. I think some of the consequences of adoption, I've turned into some positives in some ways. I certainly, now that I'm 52, looking back, I can see patterns in my life, in my relationships, in my work that I believe are influenced from adoption. And it's more clear now to understand the impact of adoption as an older person 
when I look back on my life. But thinking about adoption has hit me a few different times in life. And certainly as a little kid or a teenager, it was a much more casual thought. I was adopted. You adopted. I was adopted. Okay. And not much else to it. As I got into my 20s and I got on my own and I left college, I dropped out of college and I started to be on my own. I started to think more about my life, adoption, who I am, where do you come from? Why am I here? How did I end up in this spot? And that was the first time I said, you know, I want to look into my adoption. I want to I understand more about it. And I had very, very, very little to no information. I think I had a small torn off piece of paper that was purportedly a birth document. And so I was traveling for work in my early 20s, and I actually sat next to somebody who did adoption search on a plane. And I said, oh, I was adopted. I was actually thinking about doing this. And that person gave me their contact information in the early 90s, which was a business card, presumably back then. And I had reached out a few weeks later. And reaching out wasn't easy. It's something you think a lot about. It's something that you feel inside. Should I? Could I? Is this the right time? And it feels maybe anxious, maybe scared, maybe hopeful, all combined into one feeling. But you, you make that phone call. And it's. I think it takes a lot, that first phone call, to start searching. And I shared my information with that person. And I would say almost immediately, I said, I'm sorry, we can't help you. We, don't, we can't solve the kind of adoption that you had. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you were adopted and you have this Mexican court involved and you were in Florida and, you know, we've seen some things like this in the past and these were designed to not be solvable. When they went in, they were, they saw that all of this stuff you knew nothing about. I shared information that I had, which was a part of a birth certificate and a little bit of information about a court in Mexico. And that was enough for them to understand that this was not a typical adoption. Now, and what had your adopted parents told you? Not much in regard to the mechanics or process of my adoption. And there was a convoluted story that I had heard at one point that, and again, this is to my recollection, that the people who gave me up for adoption were law school students at the University of Miami who were just too young to keep a baby, which was not true. In the in the unraveling of all this, that Maybe it sounds like a good story, but it wasn't It wasn't a true story. Maybe that's what they had heard. Maybe that's what somebody made up, but that wasn't the true story. But Florida was mentioned. I had this Mexican court thing. And this search agency said, like, we've seen this Mexican thing before. This is most likely probably what happened to you, and we're not going to be able to solve this. And I said, okay. It was very, very disappointing. And I, I believe at the time, I wanted to write a letter to the state of Florida, because that's where I was supposedly born, and sending a letter off to Tallahassee. With information, I, I don't think I had a response, but I followed up. There was, wasn't was a response, and there was no record of me being born. And it really felt like a dead end. I more or less had dropped the topic up until I had my first kid. So I went from my early to mid-20s to probably 32 years old. And when my first son was born, again, it was, wow, this is the first blood relative that I've ever seen. That's a common thread with adoptees, obviously, as you know. The, the both of yeah. us went through that too. Yeah. Putting so, our babies um, in the hospital bed and not letting them go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that kicked off. I really need to go and figure this out. I need to search more for this. And I think at some point I'd come across the 23andMe, which seemed like the only possible way to gather information. After five years of 23andMe and starting with fourth and fifth cousins, I slowly built a, a family tree in the reverse. You know, most people start with, I guess, their parents and they go outwards. I started with 
fourth and fifth cousins on 23andMe. It was an earlier portion in the history of that website and that business. So there weren't tons and tons of people on it yet. But every year, maybe I got a third cousin, maybe eventually, maybe I found a second cousin. And I connected with one great person. And I would say 90% of the people that I had reached out to were helpful. 90 plus percent of the people wanted to help, wanted to, were curious. Oh my God, I can't believe this. 90% of people were helpful. 5% of the people maybe just didn't want to get involved. And maybe a smaller percentage, maybe they knew something they didn't want to be helpful. But it seemed like the overwhelming majority of people wanted to be helpful, which was nice. And so I spoke to one lady and she said, you know, you know a little bit more about my family history than I know. Sounds like maybe there's something here. And she went and spoke to her mom. And in talking to her mom, she'd realized that her mom was one of 10 siblings. And some of them had passed by the time this conversation had happened. She was an older woman, I think early 80s. She got on the phone with her siblings and said, you know, this person contacted my daughter. He has a lot of information that seems accurate. Is there any way that any of you know somebody who had a baby in our family that gave him up for adoption? And lo and behold, one of the people on the phone call said, yes, you know, my daughter had these circumstances way back then around the time that this seems to make sense. And I guess that person could have held the secret or kept the secret. That person turned out to have been my grandmother. So it was good that she didn't hold on to it. I don't know the time frame from that phone call with these group of siblings to when I got a phone call. But of course, I was upstate New York at a fancy shooting club where you're not allowed to have your cell phone ring. Oh, (laughs) why um, this is happening? That's where you are. (laughs) The person that I had reached out to was calling me incessantly saying, hey, I have a phone number for you. Um, so I finally took the call in the woods behind, you know, some big tree. And I said to my friend, look, I got to go. I got to, I got to leave. I gave him the gun that we were using. And I said, I got to leave. And I got on my car and I drove home. I did not want to make that phone call from there. One, the connection wasn't great, but two, anybody who was doing searching, I had a 12 foot whiteboard behind me. Anytime I made a phone call to people, because in one sentence from somebody, you can learn a lot of information. If somebody just simply says, my sister and I went to church. Well, there's a sister, there's a religion, like there's a lot you pick up. And so when you make calls, when you're searching, be prepared to take lots and lots of notes. Right. And so I had this 12 foot whiteboard that had kind of, you know, a bunch of starts and stops of information. And so I wanted to make the phone call from there. So I drove, I drove the three hours home. I made the phone call and I spoke to the person who was supposedly my mom. I feel like I knew it the second I heard her voice. What, when was this? What year was this? This was 2015, 2016. Okay. Yeah, so so way forward, it took years for me to start on 23andMe and figure out this process. It was, it was a long, long journey to get this information. Everything was a dead end until the DNA came along. And of course, I had the Ancestry site also, which had incredible family tree building tools. The 23 had the genetic information. Ancestry had both genetic and family tree tools. I believe I had something called GEDcom, which was another DNA site. Mm-hmm. I try to use these different tools. Can I ask you going back, how did you end up in New York? Like what were the circumstances of your parents adopting you? Why did they adopt you? I'm not sure why they adopted me. They were very young. They were, I think, 20 when they adopted me. Um, I would think that if a couple wanted to have a baby and they couldn't have one, they'd give a few more years than one to try before adoption. Adoption is a really big set of circumstances to consider. You know, obviously the most straightforward path to building a family, as, as all adoptees know. Right. Mm-hmm. And so good for them. They were able to conceive their own natural child six years later, but they adopted me when they were 20. And there were not unscrupulous characters involved in my adoption. There was a person named Helen Tanos Hope who had been involved in a number of black market adoptions. 
the story that my mom and grandma tell is that I was taken from the hospital uh, where I was born. I wasn't put up for adoption, but I was taken. And then the court records were for adoption were finalized in this Mexican court in Juarez, Mexico. You know, I got to say to myself, if somebody told you they were going to adopt a baby through Juarez, Mexico, you'd first ask why Juarez, Mexico, right? It doesn't seem correct. How do you have a baby there? Yeah. You know, so there were a number of circumstances around my adoption that I feel were nefarious at best. And then I believe there was another adoption person in the New York area that helped arrange these types of adoptions. I think you can call it adoption. You can call it a kidnapping. You can call it trafficking, um, trafficking, trafficking, baby broker. (laughs) To me, the lawyer that was involved on one side was indicted for cocaine trafficking. Helen Towns Hope, I think, had this very bad black market adoption track record. And so a cast of characters showed up in the records that I found over the years. I got to say, most recently, I was very, very fortunate to meet somebody who was involved in law enforcement in Miami at the time that my adoption happened. And, you know, I said, how can this happen? He goes, it can't. He goes, Miami back then was actually fairly tight, fairly well run. And if this happened, it was orchestrated. And he had turned me on to a person who was knowledgeable on investigating these types of things from that era. And this person also hit some dead ends and said, look, based on everything I've learned here and the people I've spoken to, the adoption records exist. Yours don't, but the others do. And so it looks like yours just were taken away or meant not to exist. And so it looks like this was done in these circumstances. And he was confirming that this wasn't a straightforward adoption, right? I'm reluctant to go and say, I was kidnapped and stolen. I don't know all the circumstances. That's the story that my mom and grandmother tell. And I believe every word that they say. But this is now your first mother, your biological mother. Biological, yeah. I believe, obviously, what she says in her circumstances. And she had hired a detective searching for me for eight years Mm -hmm. after I was born. And so, how I ended up in New York was that my parents who adopted me, they lived in New York. And I guess they wanted a baby. And so, somehow through this channel, they were able to get one. You met your birth mother on the phone. We talked on the phone, yeah. Yeah, so we spoke on the phone. I knew instantly from her voice, I believe, that this was my birth mother. We confirmed everything with DNA. We shared pictures. But as soon as I saw a picture that night, we had texted a picture back and forth. The resemblance was was there. The voice, the sound, the circumstances, the dates, everything lined up. And we had agreed to meet, I think, the following in the next few days. You know, maybe maybe this was a Thursday and we had met on Monday. And she lives in Florida. And obviously, it was a great moment to kind of fill in these blanks and make that connection. And so that was around 2016. So she had you with no intention of giving you up for adoption? Yeah. And she was a 15, 16-year-old range when I was born. So young, but still wanting to keep her baby. And she spent eight years looking after you were born, right after. Yes. Mm. So you're born in a hospital. What does she tell you happened? Who took you? How did that happen? I was with her. I went back to this baby area where they keep you as a newborn baby. And then Mm -hmm. then when she had come to see me again, I I wasn't there. And she had left right out of the hospital trying to find me. Where did I go? That was it. It's the worst nightmare of any mother. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible. And so that kicked off her search for this. How long were you in Mexico before you were, were you just in, you don't even know where you've been there. I don't understand all the circumstances Mm -hmm. from the Mexican side of this. And I've got a great little side story about how I got the Mexican court papers. Shockingly, they were there. Mexico turns out to be a 
pretty cool country. And a lot of what we hear about Mexico, the view we get in the United States is not necessarily the view of what life is like in Mexico. And I've learned that a few times that it is actually a great place in many, many ways. But this Juarez court showed up in my records as where I was adopted from. Again, I still I don't know all the circumstances, and I believe some of the circumstances are being withheld from me. And I'm not the only one. This happened quite a bit at that time frame. Like in Miami and through... I there think was like that there was probably other cities and, you know, I think selling babies is probably a lucrative business. Yeah. yeah. How many months were you? That's, I guess that was my question. How many months were you without, were you just in? Oh, I don't know all the dates and the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And there's no way of me trying to figure that. I tried to figure that all sorts of timelines, but I don't know all the circumstances. I did find a receipt from when I was sold, presumably in the parking lot. I did mm-hmm. actually find a piece of paper saying how much I was sold for, which I think was $2,300. What? Your uh, parents yeah. paid $2,300? I believe so. Yeah. I, I have a receipt. They paid somebody $2,300. I have a receipt. I have a yellow, I have a piece of ledger paper receipt for that. Well, we so know you. That- they got a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, so 2016, I was able to find my mom, you know, natural mom. And that needless to say for anybody listening to this on the adoptee side was obviously a life-changing moment and it filled in a big, part of you. You know, this is, I think people who are adopted feel this, I don't know if you call it a hole or emptiness or missing part, but you feel this missing part inside of you that frankly needs to be filled, right? I don't think you can really live at peace without it being filled, without knowing your natural history. I just, this is how people are built and how people are wired. Friends, family, and community actually really matter. Taking somebody out of those natural circumstances is traumatic. Absolutely. Um, the ancestry company had um, genealogists that you could hire, and they were fantastic. I worked with two genealogists from Ancestry. It was a great service. They helped me understand DNA and using different types of historical records to search. I was very fortunate to be able to have them help me. I had a detective who helped me track down information from the genealogist. That was a great, again, a great resource who helped me piece things together. And two years after finding my mom, I was able to track down my natural father. He was in Miami, where my mom was, but had moved to the Tampa, Florida region. And I had think she that, told you his name? My mom had a, a serious boyfriend and they had broken up and she had a shorter term relationship with my natural father. And she didn't remember his name, you know, we're going back 46 years when this happened, right? So, but she had a serious boyfriend that she had dated, they had broken up, and then she maybe had dated a couple of other people, one of them, my natural father. And then, yes, she remembered him after connecting all the dots in the future. And my dad certainly remembered her. He asked me for a picture and I showed him. He was like, wow, I had a, he, he thought she was pretty good looking. <laughs> he thought he was doing pretty well back then. He was excited to reconnect. Did they reconnect? No. No. But, you know, just, I think, maybe over email. And that was, that was good. Did your mom have other children? No, I'm her only child. Wow. So yeah. she was... Yeah. Pretty traumatized. I'm I think so. Guessing. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that there's a mom that has that gives birth to a baby that doesn't think about that baby every day. Every day. No matter what. And so that in of itself, a natural mother who doesn't put up their baby for adoption thinks about their baby every day. Certainly one who puts a baby up for adoption thinks and worries about their baby every day. And so yes, you know, and I'm if sure they were stolen from you, that's yeah, yeah. Those very traumatic on top of trauma. Yes. Oh. And your father, did he have other kids? He did. He had two other children. He had a fantastic wife who who I couldn't be more grateful for. She was supportive for me to meet him. And, you know, that was fantastic. And he had two 
two children that are both great people that I was able to meet and get to know a little bit. He, you know, he, John was my dad, a very, very nice guy, very affable person, somebody very, very supportive to meet. And I think when he got the first phone call, he was curious and excited. And so I got to meet him face to face after he got that phone call. A genealogist had reached out to him asking information and saying, you know, that they were working with somebody who was looking for relatives. It turned out that he was a relative we were looking for. We didn't know that at the time. Things pointed to him. You know, it turned out that, yes, well, based on his circumstances and he didn't have any other brothers, it had to be him. And so we we confirmed that also with the DNA tests and obviously the resemblance and all the other pieces that come along. And you kind of just know, I think, as an adoptee, he was very gracious and very happy about the circumstances. And do you still keep up with your half-siblings? We stay in touch periodically. Mm-hmm. They're down in the Tampa market. I hope to get to know them better in the future, but we're in touch. I have another question. So you, we know that you were raised Jewish, right? Yep. In New York. And what is your, what's your real background? Well, genetically speaking, my dad's side started out in Italy, on the northern part of Italy, Bernardi. You know, it's an Italian name. My mom was on the Irish-German side. From On a religious point of view, I believe my mom was brought up Catholic, but she's now Mormon. My dad was Christian and had a Baptist mom, and I was brought up Jewish. In one way, I have all the bases covered. <laughs> you just need um, to do a little Buddhism. And By the way, I think religion is a great thing you know, for many people. And I've read all the different religious doctrines that I can get out of curiosity. Maybe I pick one. 90% of these religions are all the same, right? Yeah. Treat people well, be nice to others, live a life of honor and integrity. They're 90% the same, right? You know, There are subtle differences, but 90%, I think they're the same. Agreed. Two-part question. Well, first is, are you still close to your mom? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. She's a great person, does great work. She's got a very nurturing background in therapy, and she's built a successful career in animal-related therapy services. She's very, very in demand for those kind of services, and she connects very, very well with animals, loves them. And yes, we are in touch. I'm very happy to be. My father, I got to know in 2018, he passed away three years later. I'm glad you met him. Yeah. Had we that spoke. opportunity. From the time I met him, I think we spoke almost every day. Oh, I had I a that. question for the background about going back. Did your adoptive parents, were they aware? I mean, of course, they probably wouldn't admit it, or but this was illegal, it seems like, an illegal adoption. I believe it was illegal. There's probably lots of things in life that are illegal in totality, but maybe each little piece of it might not be illegal. Right. And there are all sorts of ways that people rationalize and there are circumstances that people change and people believe what they want to believe. Some people are told certain things. You know, I kind of use the example. If I had come to you and said, hey, I've got this great Rolex watch. I'll sell to you now for a thousand dollars. You as a person need to make a character related decision there. Mm -hmm. You could certainly buy it knowing it's a great deal. It's a Rolex. Right. It's a thousand bucks and not ask any questions. You probably know it's stolen and somebody's Somebody's suffered because of this theft. You might buy it knowing that this was buying it yourself wasn't illegal, but probably the person who's selling you a $25,000 watch for $1,000 probably got it illegally. And you, you know you probably know that you, you might be the kind of person that's okay with that. Mm-hmm. Or you might be the kind of person that says, I don't care how good of a deal it is. You stole that. Those were circumstances I don't want to be involved in. And I'm not going to buy it from you for any price. Right. My guess is, is that people wanted babies and this was a way of getting them. And if you were willing to look the other way and compromise your morality or ethics in some ways, somebody can convince you that this is all okay. Agreed. Did you have this conversation with them? 
Yeah. Yes, I've tried to have the conversation, but that kind of a conversation really only ends one or two. Of course, we would never do something like that. Or, yeah, we did something bad, right? And in life, you know, I've learned this in my work also, you never meet the bad person, Mm -hmm. right? When everybody tells you a business story, they always tell you the story from, I was the person who got screwed. That other guy, the other person's always the bad person. Always. You, you never meet the bad person. Like nobody ever comes to you and says, Well, let me tell you about my business. Let me tell you what happened. I kind of screwed over all these people. I stole the money. You never meet the bad person. You always meet the person who suffered from the bad person. That's that conversation that couldn't end well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In some way. I know enough now where I, I have a, a good sense of what happened. And I'm okay with that. that and I'm not going to change s- what happened either. No. <laughs> right. Right. What's in the past is in the past. We can't go back to the past. We can't regain the past. Past doesn't really exist anymore. And so at some point, okay, this happened, but do you need to move on with your life? That's kind of what I was going to ask you. So you came, did you start listening to our podcast and coming into this? Or were you already doing reading sort of that? I know the last couple of years has been really big for you dealing with, because you're involved with us, even helping other adoptees. And yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll touch on professionally. You know, I've always worked independently. I've been an entrepreneur throughout my career. I've built a couple of different technology-related software businesses, New York City-based. And I don't think I'm an entrepreneur by accident. I think my circumstances have influenced largely how I got to where I am today. I think one realization I've had is I feel like I live in a constant state of survival. I don't know if that's unique or not to other adopters. I'd love to hear if other people feel that way. Me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's reflected in my work, I was building a business that I think most people would call substantial. It was, a, it was a very successful technology business. We had great investors. We had a great team, very high quality people. It was a substantial, very successful technology business based in New York City. And very common investors will say to their CEOs, who I was the founder and CEO of this company, I had started it and we were growing very nicely and it was a big business, that Jeff, you were never trained as a CEO. You know, you should get a CEO coach. And I said, yeah, I probably, you know, it's probably a good idea. We've got a couple of hundred people working at this company. And yeah, you need to learn those things. And so a CEO coach was like a, a really good idea. Let's do it. And I had met with a great, a great CEO coach, a lot of respect, very, very successful. And CEO coaches aren't so easy to come by. You mm-hmm. kind of want them to be a good fit. And we were talking about business and we were talking about work. And I had the opportunity to meet with this person. And he goes, Hey, Jeff, I don't think you need a CEO coach. I think you need a therapist. Yeah. And that, that was kinda... like in the first meeting. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it sounds like you're doing things pretty well at work. Sounds like, you know, you know what you're doing here, but some of the topics you're bringing up to me sound more therapy related. And I was like, really? I need a therapist? Well, you know, he's like, I think you need a therapist. Here's Had you ever number. been to therapy in your no, life? No. Not, not, no kind of therapy. I went to a session as a kid. I kind of remember this. Maybe I was 10, 11, 12. And I went to this therapist's office and I guess, you know, my adoptive parents had brought me there. And after the session, I think my mom interacted with the therapist and in the car ride home, they go, why did you tell this to the therapist? Why did you say that? All that trust was broken down. I was like, okay. <laughs> like That was the last time I thought about it. And I kind of put therapists in the same vein as physical therapy. Like, I'm okay. I don't need to do physical therapy. Physical therapy is the greatest thing I ever did after an injury. Once yeah. I accepted that, it's actually pretty important. Therapy is one of the greatest things I did after I accepted that, yeah, maybe I do need to see a therapist. Maybe it is good, right? And yeah. so he gave me the number of therapists. And that therapist was like very, very clear on, look, what you're thinking and what you're feeling is valid. The circumstances that you've lived through are real and substantial. And he kind of framed out a lot of what I wasn't seeing, but living with. Mm-hmm. And it was ultra helpful 
for me in that regard. And so that was my first foray into this adoption stuff and how does it affect people and, and relationships and work and family and just yourself, maybe even your own stress and you know, oh, all yeah. those things. So the was, things we don't know, right? I mean, when you peel back, yeah. you're like, oh, you're like hitting so, your head against a wall in relationships and life. And yeah. So that was eye opening for me. After that therapy session, I said, you know, I do have some things I want to work on. I resigned my position at my company. And actually, re- resignation is probably a generous word for myself. I think that it was a good time for me to part ways with the company. I think I think my investors thought so also. You know, having grown the company substantially, having been a founder at the company, but the company had different needs and I probably had different things to address also at this point. And this was, I think, my third successful company. It was kind of a good time to maybe pause, reflect, think about where things were and do that. And so in hindsight, it was it was very good for both of us, right? the company and me. And it was a good time for me to start thinking about some things a little bit differently. Maybe think about this notion of survival. And I hadn't even thought about it in the in those words yet. Like I'm living in this constant state of survival and maybe making money was one way of surviving, right? But obviously I think that there are others. And now I think that it was a good time to maybe pause some of that trajectory of my career and focus on some of these more esoteric concepts in my life personally. And so that that is in fact what I did. And that that dovetails with the time of finding my mom and finding my dad. And I had still stayed very involved in my work. I was on I was on my company's board. I was an investor in other companies. I was on other company boards, but I had given up my day-to-day full-time operating role. And by the way, I re- I also understand the luxury of being able to do that, of giving up my full-time work and just serving on boards. But it was a good time for me to think through some of these things. And Sarah, to you know, to to tell you a little bit more about this, somebody handed me a book. I think the first book I read on adoption of was, you know, where the mothers went or where the girls went. It was about uh, the, girls, the girls who went away. It was about yeah. natural mothers. It, mm-hmm. And it, it was their stories of them being sent off to have a baby and give it up for adoption. And it was a heartbreaking, heartbreaking. very, very, very tough book to read. I mean, like page by page, it's very difficult. Were you having like a breakdown is probably too strong a word, but like, were you feeling like you were in emotionally in crisis? No, I put a lot of that stuff aside in this notion of survival. Like, okay, this is what I have to do. Mm-hmm. I've got a family. I, you know, my job is to support them. And I learned how to live in the circumstances that I had. I never walked around like an emotional mess, or at least I don't think so. I did have a close friend who pointed some things out to me. He's like, look, sometimes you come off a little bit like this and a little bit like that. But you know what? That could be anybody. That could be an adopted person or not adopted person. Maybe they're driven from different things. And but after the therapy stuff, it was more clear, you know, where I had opportunity for improvement. And reading some of the adoption stuff gave me the explanation for why some of those things were there. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, I read a few different books, fast forwarding a few books. I found in the back of one book, some resources. I went online. I explored those resources. I really love to go to one of these weekend retreats with other adoptees and meet other people who are adopted, hear, hear how they feel about these things. I got to say that was eye-opening mm-hmm. to me, meeting other adoptees, understanding how they think about identity, a sense of self, where they're from, that empty feeling inside. I didn't know these things existed. I didn't know these people spoke. I didn't know these books were written. I didn't know the things that were available to an adoptee up until just a few years ago, four or five years ago. Right? We didn't either. Same. It's mm-hmm. kind of astounding when you yeah. think that you adopt a child and then there's nothing talked about. Yeah. Well, if you're adopted, you know, there's this notion that you're lucky and you were chosen. Yeah. We came into 
just a few years ago as well. We're the same. It's, it so is very eye-opening. I read this book. I think one was called Ithaca. One was by this lady named Anne. I don't look adopted. I believe it was called. Oh, you Anne Heffron. Yes. Anne Heffron. Oh, fantastic. Very, very great book. I actually emailed her and thanked her for the book. And very grateful for these people who've actually written these things because I benefited from having them. Of course, the primal wound I liked also. And so in the back of one of these books, I found some resources. I, lo and behold, came across, I'm fast forwarding some years here, but I came across a person named Joe Saul, S-O-L-L. Mm-hmm. He had a website that kind of took you through some of the books he's written, some of the content he's created, some of the videos on YouTube that he's put together. And he is, I think, assembled some of the best content out there for adoptees. He's put decades into a career of understanding adoption. He was adopted. I do think adoptees who do seek therapy would benefit from a therapist who was adopted. doesn't have to be in all circumstances, but I believe that that person, I don't think a person who wasn't adopted could really understand what you feel on the inside unless you were adopted. Yeah. And that's also why it felt great to meet other adoptees. You can relate to the circumstances that the natural people around you just wouldn't understand. And so I went to an adoption weekend. It was, it was again, light, you know, I went from meeting my mom, which was life-changing, to reading books, which were life-changing, to going to a weekend, which was life-changing. You know, somewhere before or after that weekend, I was searching. I was like, okay, well, let me search podcasts and let me search other things out there. What other kind of content is out there that would be nice to hear? And I came across yours. And what I loved most about it was the stories of other adoptees. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of the commonality amongst other adoptees and just hearing the stories was soothing in a way, mm-hmm. understanding that these things are real. I'm not going to walk around life like some sorry, sad sack that I was adopted and everything's bad. Right. Yeah. OK. There are circumstances. They're tough. They've affected people lots of different ways. Understanding them, I think, can give you power. They can help you understand. OK, well, this is why I'm feeling this way. What do I want to do about it? How do I want to handle yeah. this? Where do I want to go for help? Where is help? Right. And so. There are things out there and it is great. And your podcast, you know, was another one of those life-changing moments to hear the stories, right? And Joe Saul's Adoption Weekend was fantastic. I met four people there that I consider good friends now, people that I can call and talk to and connect with and hopefully be there for them. I hope all of us get together again for another weekend at some point. That kind of brings me up to today and meeting you guys. And maybe a year ago, I read an article about another person named Tyler who was running an adoption nonprofit called Connecting Roots. And he was helping connect people from a South American country who's who were taken from their family. And it, this sounded horrible. You know, they would come and tell you, hey, we're sorry, your baby had passed away during birth. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the government or other people are out there selling babies out the back door of the hospital. These families, and this was ongoing for a long time. And this guy, Tyler, is taking on the work of piecing these stories back together, piecing these families back together. And so it's like, wow, it'd be great to support somebody like him. And I reached out and told him I'd be willing to support his organization. And I was very happy to do so. I believe in giving back when you can. Mm-hmm. So a part of my work has evolved from building companies to investing in companies. You know, I run my, I run an investment business today. It's called S12F. And that is the sponsor, I guess, of, of your show or one of the sponsors. And a big part of my, my business today is not only do I have made these investments, but the beneficiary of a lot of my investments will go to different philanthropic efforts. I was able to meet this person, Pamela, who I think is an incredibly courageous person. Mm-hmm. She built Adoptees Connect. It's this grassroots organization that provides support in local markets led by adoptees to bring other adoptees together. I mean, what Pam has done 
as an individual to reach out and build this network is incredible. It's amazing uh, what she's amazing. built. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And so I feel extreme gratitude to be able to support people who are doing these things. And I hope that I can support them more in the future. I hope that your show goes from reaching thousands to tens of thousands of adoptees because I think they will all benefit from it as I have. Well, um, I w- we do too. And and we appreciate your support. It helped us go weekly, which we always get notes constantly like, oh my gosh, this is great. Every week they can hear somebody because you do relate to everybody's story. Yeah. They're not there's, your story, yeah, but they're all in- similar. Well, we all have a common thread, you know, that we, Mm -hmm. that we as adoptees share that we talk about all the time on the podcast. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that I've learned to help articulate to people who are talking about adoption or thinking about adoption, another point of view on adoption. Yeah. Right. I do think that adoption should be avoided in all possible circumstances. I do think a baby should be kept with the mother, and if not the mother, the grandmother or the sister or the brother or within the family under all circumstances, if you can. You know, people like to say, but what if the mother was a drug addict that was run over? Okay, there are some circumstances where (laughs) adoption is going to happen, right? But in general, what can we do to keep babies with mothers? The narrative has to change because it doesn't come from adoptees. I mean, you and Sarah and I talk about this all the time. The narrative out there is not from our point of view. Yeah. Obviously. Well, it's, it's th- the money. Th- thankfully there is we are getting heard now. Yes. You know, there was a recent article in the yeah. New Yorker which is really I felt legitimized our voices in a way that hasn't been done before because it's the New Yorker. It's interesting that adoption is one of the, you know, we're such a divided place and mm-hmm. yet that is the one thing in which people don't <laughs> seem divided. Adoption is a good thing and they don't yeah. want to hear our voices. No. Yeah. Yeah. We live in America and it is the greatest country in the world, but adoption is a business, right? Yeah. You know, I think a baby generates $50,000 in fees each time. Yeah. And I'm sure there's people willing to pay even more than that if that's what it takes. And so it's a business and people market adoption the way they want to market it to make it a business and keep it a business. You think about all these adoption agencies out there. How do you actually change the narrative? It's like every town and every village and every city has an adoption agency. Yeah. Right. And they're in business to do this. And so that's this kind of like this network out there that's almost impossible to communicate with. Right. And of course, if a parent wants a baby because their circumstances require that to have a family, they're going to go to one of these agencies who's happy to make that happen because it's a business. One of the things I love about Pamela's organization is that, well, the way she's building this network of adoptee support groups, it's almost the way adoption agencies were built. And mm-hmm. so if we've got this army of adoptees out there in every town and every village and every city, we'll have That's a voice right. in every town and every city so that if somebody is going to adopt, they can at least hear the other point of view, at least understand what they're in for, understand that this isn't an instant family or it's going to be a family the way you think it's going to be, right? And, right. You're, um, these babies are not blank slates. Like yeah. They come from somewhere. They come from other people. You can't yeah. just make yeah. somebody into something they're not. That's right. There is something called DNA, right? And we're <laughs> wired a certain way. We look a certain way. We're going to grow to a certain height and we might be athletic or we might be artistic. Hey, but it's like you've taken this baby and you say, look, that's all great. But now here's how you're going to live to fulfill our vision of a family, right? Yeah. And that is almost an impossible equation to ever make work right. I don't think that there's an adoptee that's not searching. And that doesn't mean that they are on 23andMe. I just think that if they're walking through a crowd, they're looking, could that be my brother? Could that be my sister? Always. In the building. 
I don't think there's an adoptee that's not searching. I'm sorry when I hear parents who are offended about their child searching, right? And they don't understand that it's only in their nature to search. And then they're um, adding to the adoptee's guilt, which yeah. I don't know about you, but I feel like I was born <laughs> guilty. I don't yeah. know. It's like, my middle name. You're not, supposed for... <laughs> to, you're not supposed to discuss these things. Right. Even the of most course. open adoptive parents, the kids still have that hole inside. They sure that, do. That you talked about. So They do. Uh, so I said I was going to tell you a little bit about one of these little circumstances of how I got some records. Yeah. So- just going back, something something you said made me think of that. So I was building a new business and we were looking for our first team members. We were looking for engineers, software engineers to hire. And we had come across this fantastic female engineer from Mexico working in Connecticut for a big company. And she had applied for one of our engineering roles. And I say that about this person because in typical startup in New York City, you wouldn't really think about a person from Mexico working on a green card in for a big company in a suburb it just mm-hmm. doesn't fit the profile of the kind of person that might join a new york-based startup but this person of course we took the meeting we took the interview the person was extremely well qualified and turned out to be one of the most talented people i've ever worked with so you know she had come to our company and you know having been from mexico at some point i said to her i've got this mexican background also she's like no what are you talking about you know you're a, a white jewish guy from long island you know i'm like well I am white, but probably wasn't Jewish and I'm not from Long Island and I do have this Mexican <laughs> thing. And I brought her the I brought her the ripped off piece of paper that I had, you know, that had a little bit of information on it. And she goes, Wow, I can't believe this. This is this is interesting. And then she had gone home, I think, during the holidays to visit her family and she relayed the story to her parents. And her dad was intrigued by it and he recognized, I think, the address or or something in the document. And out of curiosity, he's like, Well, let me let me see. What else is out there? I, you know, I express that I love to figure out what happened to me. This was before the 23andMe and all that kind of stuff. So I'd love to figure out what, what happened to me. And turns out that he knew the judge name that was on the paper. And on this first piece of paper, he's like, you know, we come from the Juarez area. And I know that name. And so he went to the courthouse that was in the record on the first page. And it was all in Spanish. But, you know, they read it and they went to the, the courthouse. And, of course, the judge was no longer there, but the judge's son was the new judge in this court. (laughs) And he said, look, I'm looking for the rest of the records that go with this piece of paper. And we gave him some information, you know, that would have been 1970. And they said, well, anything that we might have had was all moved to Mexico City 30 years ago, right? It might be there. And he took it upon himself to go to Mexico City and help see if he can actually track down these records. And he gets to Mexico City and he called his daughter who was working in my office and we were there and I think we PayPal some money so he can pay some people an incentive to go and like, please go dig in the file, see if there's there. And he spent time in Mexico City and found 20 pages of records related to my Oh my doctor. God. What an amazing. Mexico oh. is not this place that everybody perceives it to oh, be. Oh, Mexico is wonderful. It's so, amazing. I, I just got back from Mexico City, one of the greatest cities I've ever visited. Great married, people. Married to amazing. a man from Mexico City for 15 years. Mexican people are great. The country is great also. You should go visit Mexico City. Your head will not get cut off. It'll be a beautiful trip. It's wonderful. What was in the records? A lot more information related to the adoption, like witnesses. By the way, 90% of it was probably just made up. Right. But I got a full set of records at least. And I thought it was crazy how, you know, we hired this atypical person to join our company. And that connection was able to lead me to a full set of records in Mexico 
for this. I have the records. I asked another friend of mine who does speak Spanish he, to help translate them. I have them, but I, I know a lot of the information that wasn't accurate. It was meant to be that she worked there. I mean. Unbelievable, right? Like a crazy little circumstance. And like I said, 90, 90 plus percent of the people you meet in this journey want to be helpful. Yes, yeah. for sure. I just, yeah. you know, had the, my final piece, my birth mother was also adopted. We didn't know who the father was and I couldn't find anything. And somebody found on Instagram and she was, she's like a search angel. She's like, I'll help you if you share your DNA with me. This was just like two, three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. She tracked down who my biological grandfather was from Rochester, New York. So amazing. Yeah. I mean, just super helpful. She took all this time and didn't ask for anything. It's just, this is what we do to help. And yeah, cool. amazing. so I guess you don't, or you never will really know what happened once you left that little nursery in the hospital, who took you? I won't, I won't know what happened between the nursery in the hospital and my first moment in New York. The parking lot. Yeah, I won't know that. And that is news to me as of just a few weeks ago. Because like I said, I work on the board of another company and I met this incredible, incredible fellow board member who worked in law enforcement in Miami. And he, there couldn't be a better person to help unravel this. But there is no record of me being born in the United States. There is no adoption record of me that exists. I don't know where they are. I know that there are other adoptees who records do exist and they know they exist and they can't get them. That's one problem, but there is no record of me that can be mm-hmm. found. And I was born in Florida because my mom was there, And but Florida has no record of me being born. And if there's somebody in Florida listening to this and can help me find the record, awesome. But I think as of a few weeks ago, we've exhausted all the resources to try to find the record. And so um, no one ever held accountable or anything for this? Yeah, right. Do you at least uh, know your birth date since you know your mother? I, I believe it to be... May 12th, but what birthday? I never really understood why I didn't care about my birthday. Mm-hmm. That's an adoptee thing, yeah. too. I think so, right? Or you we get, dread our You birthdays. dread it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't look forward to celebrating it because it's like the first day of a long journey. I, I try to make every day great instead of just having one day that people celebrate. Yeah. You know, maybe every day should just be a good day. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Have you met other people that have in your journey that Maybe we're from the same circumstance as you from that hospital or no? No, I haven't met people who've unraveled a black market adoption. I'm, I know that they're out there and I think mm-hmm. I've seen some TV related shows around this. I think that there's one in the Carolinas where there was this, something of this nature, maybe one from Ohio, but I, I've seen TV documentaries on some of these topics, but that's it. No, I haven't met anybody else that's been through this. And I'm sure your mom was easy prey being her age and... I think that that's the start of it. I think that they yeah. see somebody vulnerable yeah. come in and uh, they look at it as a opportunity. It's that trafficker's mindset, yeah. period. I mean, exploit the vulnerable. The doctor had to be involved. The nurse, the nurses were most likely involved based on everything that we can figure out. They, either, somebody in that hospital was involved. It's disgusting. Yeah. Well, I hope if someone's listening, maybe you never know. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. Reach out. Wow, um, Jeff, what a story. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Lots of stories out there. I got to say, overall, I've been very fortunate to live a very good life. I'm grateful for lots of the things in my life. This is just a part of my life. And I know that it probably is also a big part of other people's lives. And you know, hopefully, the same way I found resources in books, in your podcast, in Joe Saul, I hope other people can find those resources. I hope your podcast helps people find those resources. 
And I hope that we can help support organizations that will continue to help adoptees as well. That's become a, an important part of my life's work now. Ours too. And thank you. We're going to list those resources too. You've mentioned a lot of them and they're wonderful. Joe Saul helped another guest of ours, Carlina. Mm-hmm. So he's doing good work. It's nice to hear that. You know, He's for doing others. great work. He's doing great work. Wow. All right. Well, we will list everything and including your website in our show cool. notes for everybody wants to reach out. And thanks. Thank you. For, thank you for doing this. Yeah. Appreciate thank you for your work. Thanks for having me today. And thanks to all the other adoptees who shared their stories. And we'll continue to do so. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks. Okay. Jeff. I'm so glad we finally got Jeff on and his emotional intelligence is so just rich. He's got a lot of emotional intelligence and the way he tells a story and the way that he dealt with it. It was very impressive that he sought, first of all, his coach to not just take money, but to say, oh, you uh-huh. need a therapist. I thought that's a stand-up person. And then he went down that road and said, you know what? I'm going to take time for my life to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Luxury or not, most of us just go full force like bulls in a china shop, right? And he, he's really a um, deep guy. Neat he person, is very, such yeah. a neat person. Just the resources, like he's really trying to help other adoptees and help himself and learn about things. And even when we speak to him, we always feel uplifted and ready to go. And yeah, I hope one day the mystery of this, <laughs> what sounds like trafficking, kidnapping, whatever Just you will, is ugly to be solved. And I mean, I'm I'm sure this is still going on. I mean, it is. We know it is. We- We know it is. And I'm just thinking of his little mother and going to the nursery. This is why we were like, baby doesn't leave the room, right? Yeah. And and they allow you to do that now. Back then, everybody went in a big room. Go visit mm -hmm. your baby and they're not there. Imagine that. I know. Trauma for both of them. I can't. mm. Well, I love that he shared and came on. This has been a wonderful day. It really has. Well, what do we say? (laughs) Another great episode. Another great episode. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, Find us at patreon.com, searching adoption, colon, the making of me. Bye. See you next time.